Hello and welcome to Malaria, Poverty and Politics. My name is Silas Majambere and I am very grateful that you have chosen to join me on this episode. Today, I have the privilege to chat with Dr. Michael Adekunle Charles, CEO of the RBM Partnership to End Malaria. Dr. Charles is a well-respected leader, having served the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies for 17 years. Dr. Charles is a humanitarian and international diplomat, guiding teams around the world with an unwavering commitment to developmental causes. He is passionate about coordinating malaria interventions, strengthening health systems, and working with hundreds of partners around the world to advance their mission. As Chief Executive Officer at the RBM Partnership to End Malaria, Dr. Charles is at the forefront of convening and collaborating with over 500 partners in the combined mission towards the elimination of the disease. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Charles about the recent change in the governance of the RBM Partnership to End Malaria. We discuss the issues of localization and agenda setting for malaria elimination in Africa. We talk about the over-reliance on commodities to control malaria, a disease of poverty, and the role of the partnership in the fight against malaria. This episode is published on the opening day of the UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP28, happening in the United Arab Emirates. And for the first time, there will be a day dedicated to the impact of climate change on health. Dr. Charles will be attending the conference, and in this conversation, I ask him what will be his message to the thousands of world leaders attending the conference. Wherever you're listening from, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome. Michael Charles, welcome to uh, Malaria, Poverty and Politics. I'm so grateful that you have uh, accepted to chat with me. Uh, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Silas. And it's really an honor and a privilege to be here with you today, um, just to speak to you about some of the pertinent issues ahead of COP28. All right. So, um, Michael, uh, I'll call you Michael. I think that's that's fine. Um, that's fine. So, so, so we can make it more personal. Um, it's it's really a good time, um, given what's going on in the world, and and um, also you just mentioned uh, COP twenty eight. We will get to that, but I wanted first to start uh, with you as a person. Um, who are you? Uh, where are you? Um, for the audience that doesn't know who you are, um, just mentioning that you are the CEO of uh, Rollback Malaria Partnerships to End Malaria, but you have a, a life beyond that. So who, who are you, Michael? Certainly, certainly I have a life. So my names are Michael Adekunle Charles, surname being Charles, and my middle name is Adekunle. 
Um, I am a Nigerian, um, studied in Germany, studied in Ireland, um, lived in Nigeria, practiced in Nigeria, happily married with three big boys. Um, currently based in Geneva, I moved to Geneva in July. And before then, I had done different work in different capacities, mainly with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. As initially a technical person, and then I went into leadership. So my last posting was in South Africa as the head of delegation for the Southern African countries. And before then, I was in South Sudan as the head of delegation there as well between 2016 and 2019. And before then, I had, you know, towards the continent in different capacities, the African continent. So quite familiar with some of the pertinent issues on the continent, um, but also some of the political dynamics as well. Um, that also influences some of the some of the work that we do. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for letting everyone know who you are. Clearly a very long career um, and um, you're sitting in a very important position right now uh, at the rollback malaria. So I just for clarification, I think people uh, I've been working closely with uh, rollback malaria for a while. I've been at the vector control working group um, for about a few years now. Uh, but usually people confuse rollback malaria and WHO, um, and they don't always make the difference between the two. Can you clarify for people who is rollback malaria and how different are you from WHO? Great. So rollback malaria actually changed its name to RBM to end malaria. So in 1998, rollback malaria was set up, um, and at that time, we were having quite a lot of malaria cases. A child used to die every 30 seconds. And at that time, the world came together to say, we need to roll back malaria, so roll it back. Now with all the you know um, good work that has been done and with the better statistics, still not where we want to be, we now said, okay, now we've rolled it back. We now need to go towards ending it. So the word RBM or the letters RBM still exist, but it doesn't mean rollback malaria anymore. It just means RBM partnership to end malaria. And that's exactly what we are. We are a partnership. We convene, we communicate, we coordinate all the various efforts around malaria globally in terms of that fight. WHO obviously is a policy organization, and they also give technical support, technical advice to countries. So for example, when there's a new medication, when there's a new tool, it has to be recommended and pre-qualified by WHO. That's what they do. We coordinate all the other activities around malaria in terms of convening, coordinating, communicating, and just making sure that the globe really focuses on ending, ending malaria. So we have two distinct functions, but we work very much hand in hand. We work together as much as possible to ensure that there is no overlap, there's no duplication, and that we continue to complement what each organization is doing. Great. Um, thanks, Michael. So um, I want to challenge you a little bit uh, on, on the name change and um, what it means. Um, the reason being, okay, we certainly we have moved uh, from 2005 uh, or 2000, people like to go back that far. 
from where we were at the time and how many kids were dying or people dying of malaria and where we are today. But at the same time, we have been either stagnant or in some cases going back uh, for the past seven years. And depending on who is talking, some people say, well, this is the impact of COVID and, and stuff like that. But the, the stagnation started before uh, the pandemic came in terms of malaria advances. So do you think um, do you think we are on the course to eliminate malaria? Is uh, someone would say, well, you changed the name towards ending malaria, but how how practical is that? Is it, is it uh, just an advocacy? Or do you truly believe that we're going towards end malaria? No, very good question. And my, my thoughts are that if we put all our efforts together, we put all our resources together, we are in a position to end malaria. We have new tools in place. We know what works, what doesn't work. Um, so putting all that together, we can end malaria. Now, will we do it in the next couple of years is the big question. And we have what we call the perfect storm at the moment where we have more and more insecticide resistance. We have more conflicts um, on the African continent, which means people are displaced. People are not able to get their commodities. And um, we have the funding gap. And we also have issues around the climate. So with everything that is happening, it's a little bit more difficult to get to where we want to get to, but it's not impossible. And that's for me is really the big takeaway to say if we put everything together, we can end malaria. And that's the belief of the RBM partnership. Um, because as I said, we know what works, we know what to do. It's just a matter of doing it and really getting that political commitment, getting the funding in place. So the words or the, the renaming of, of RBM is not misplaced, which was carefully thought through. And as you know, with any global milestones, they're always ambitious. If we look at the SDGs, the MDGs, they were quite ambitious. And we are also ambitious to say, yes, we can do it. It will take a lot to do it, but it is possible. And it is very possible. I really believe in that. And I'm hoping that by 2030, a lot, a lot of gains would have been made in the fight against malaria. Thank you. Um, so I think we continue on that uh, for a while because that's that's really the center of of this podcast and what we I'm trying to to understand or to let the community understand is the the tension between setting goals and and going towards end malaria and what we actually do um, to get there. So the, the actual practice of, of trying to end malaria. So you mentioned that we have what it takes. We know what works, we know what doesn't work. Um, and we have, I think we have the commitment to an extent. Um, there's funding, there's, of course, funding is not never enough, but there is more than there was before. And I hope that continue to be. So my challenge, and if you if you follow what um, critics uh, say, it's it's like we know what works, but it's not necessarily what we are doing. And I, I want you to to um, see whether I'm thinking correctly. And we can disagree on this one, obviously. Uh, so my 
my take personally uh, for the 15, 15 years that I've been doing malaria control and, and working with, with um, national programs and research groups and um, even manufacturers, it looks like we know what has worked and malaria elsewhere uh, in Europe, where, we, where I'm sitting today, Spain, um, in the US, in other today developed countries. But it's not necessarily what we are doing in Africa. Um, the, the methods of, of malaria control that happened at the time is not what we're doing or is not the priorities today in Africa. We have a very, very big focus on commodities uh, for uh, malaria control in Africa. Do you think this strategy will get us to zero? Um, the reliance on, on commodities um, in general. So do you? What, what's your take on that? So you, I, I agree with you, Silas. Commodities is one thing, but it's not the only thing. If we look in the history in terms of countries that have been able to eliminate malaria, the mistake a lot of people do is look at malaria elimination from a health perspective alone. If we continue to look at it from a health perspective alone, it will be very difficult to get to the end line. We mm. need to look at it from a multi-sectoral approach. The infrastructure needs to be there. The gutters that we see um, in some of our capitals, in some of our cities on, on the African continent, they need to disappear. The way we build our houses needs yeah. to also, you know, so so it's 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 a multifaceted approach. And if we learn from history, we we will realize that yes, commodities is one thing, but we also need to speak to speak to others. And that's why as the RBM partnership. We call it a partnership, and if you look within the partnership, it's not it's not just the health health colleagues that are there. You know, we have people from finance that are there. We have people from the environments that are there. We have people from infrastructure that are there. We have education that is there, because we we need to come all together. And that was exactly my point. That yes, we know what it takes. We we know from history how we can do it, but we are not there yet. Again, because of many priorities on the continent. Um, you know, if you ask a health minister or a president to say, you know, we, we need to focus on education, he or she will tell you, yes, we need to focus on education, we need to focus on infrastructure, we need to focus on, you know, the police, blah, 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 but there's not enough resources. Mm -hmm. So I think bit by bit, we, we can do what we can, but we also should not leave it just to the public sector alone. Private mm -hmm. sector has to come in. The common citizen has to come in to do his or her own part. For example, we we talk about malaria in pregnancy. You know, the, the, the government can give you the tools and the commodities, but if people are not going to the health facilities to get the IPTP, then, you know, we're not going to get to where we have to get to. So really, it's a multifaceted and dynamic context that we're looking at. And everybody will really need to play their part for us to get to the finish line. Yeah, very good. I, I like I like you. I was thinking or worrying that we might disagree, but I'm glad that we we're seeing the same way. Um, there has been, uh, I mean, we've known for a while that malaria is a disease of poverty, um, and there's a cyclical uh, relationship. So malaria causes poverty. Poverty um, makes it possible for malaria to thrive in the tropics. But what, what has been frustrating me as a person, really here, I'm talking very personal, um, is 
there is less there is less focus or discussion on how do we alleviate extreme poverty for people to thrive uh, for people to so we, multisexual approaches to malaria yes but the underlying the underlying causes of malaria are simple rather uh, so it's it's poverty it's lack of access to healthcare uh, or health systems it's bad houses it's bad environment or let's say undrained environment that houses or that lets mosquitoes thrive those are very simple things to understand from the community level even from a, a mother who's never been to school who doesn't know about uh, the transmission process of malaria they see, they can really understand that having a water body around your house is a bad idea um, they can understand that uh, draining is a right thing to do. They know they need a good house that is uh, proofed uh, against mosquitoes and other things. But I've seen very less. Um, it's only a few years ago uh, I was part or, or uh, I was around the um, first trials on screening houses uh, that happened in the Gambia. But how is it that we we have not as a community focused on those simple things, draining swamps, uh, building better houses, um, teaching people education. And, and before you respond, I'll just give you an example. I, I, I went to Ethiopia in 20, 2008. Um, I was supporting a program. And then we went uh, sampling mosquitoes. I'm an entomologist, so anytime I go to a place, I, I go with the deepest. Mm -hmm. Uh, looking around water bodies and there was this particular house in front of the house like one meter from the house there is a, a water body that has teeming mosquito larvae a lot um, that you can't count and it's one meter away from the door and I asked this woman uh, with her child uh, why are you keeping this water here she said it's for her gods um, to come in and, and drink when when they come back home so she can't get it out. And I showed her the, the larvae. She did not connect the larvae to another mosquito. She didn't know that um, these are, she's actually breeding mosquitoes that will come and bite her kids. And this is 2008. It's not like a, a hundred years ago. Um, do you see the disconnect? So going back to the question that I was asking before, do you see the disconnect between what we're trying to do as a global community and what the community understands, the community at the lowest level, uh, people who have not been to school, but who, who deserve some dignity, who deserve um, understanding how they control malaria. So do you see this disconnect? I, I certainly see the disconnect. Um, and that's why we continue to work with our ministries of health. We continue to work with our community organizations in terms of that consistent education, consistent follow-up, consistent social mobilization around what we do within the communities. You said a statement that, you know, some of these things are easy or some of these things make, you know, make sense and why is it not done? You know, things, things that make sense doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to get done. The example you gave of the woman um, with the livestock, I've heard that a thousand times, and it's really around the family prioritizing, do I, do I 
take care of my livelihoods that will give me money to put food on the table? Or do I say, you know, my livelihood, your secondary, let me get rid of the larva. And thankfully, we haven't been put in that position. But if these people are, if people are put in that position, it's a hard decision to make. And as you rightly said, if we're not able to give them an alternative, for example, have a water source for the animals to be to be to be drinking. If we're not able to do that, then it's very hard for this particular in this particular example for them to to get rid of it. So I think, as I said, it's really a multifaceted approach. Working with the community leaders, working with the religious leaders, working with the men and women in the in the in the communities to just sort of make sure that they see the sense of what we're trying to do, and they also see an alternative to part of to some of the problems. I have been in many situations where I go to communities and women, men, parents, they, they, they need to choose between, I have a child that has fever, do I walk 20 kilometers to the health facility? you know, to 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 get him seen uh, or her seen? Or do I wait a bit because of other priorities um, before I now go to the health facility? Basically, what I'm trying to say is that if if we really want to nail it, we need to bring health facilities closer to the communities. And that's why the African Union, together with other agencies, they're really working around this model of community health workers, trying to build that workforce that is really close to the communities that can go daily um, to the to the communities that can help them, that they can talk talk through some of these um, ideas and make sure that those alternatives are embedded within the the the, the projects or the activities we want them to do. It's certainly not easy, Silas. It's 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 taking making a decision out of you know many complexities, and yeah. that's what our community members are facing. And my my plea has always been, we need those community leaders to step up. We need our leaders generally to step up, and we need public private partnerships. Um, if if we take the example of a of Coca-Cola, let me use that. So there's a Coca-Cola bottle or can in every village. Yeah. How can we use their logistic system to ensure that we're also looking into some of the challenges when it comes to health? So more innovative thinking, more collaborative thinking, and more thinking around how do we really make sure that we're talking about localization and we're really putting the people in the communities at the center. Um, a lot of people talk, but yeah. do we walk the talk? And I think what we need to start doing is really walking the talk and giving the people within the communities the leverage, the ability to be able to make decisions and to be able to think through some of these solutions. Yeah. So great. Uh, perfect segue. You just mentioned the buzzword that I wanted to get to into the my next question. Um, it's much more political and how, how people are thinking today. So you just mentioned localization. So um, I read your website, um, the RBM uh, Partnership to End Malaria, and um, 
with the new board that you put in place, um, uh, you say, is an, and I quote, it's a highly representational board, over half, half of which are from malaria-affected countries. And this obviously is a welcome move. It's not always been this uh, the case. Um, why is it important that um, half of your board is from malaria endemic countries? What, what does it mean? The solution is in our hands, Silas. As Africans, um, with the global malaria burden, 95% of it is on the continent. It's quite critical to ensure that when we talk about RBM partnership, we're also walking the talk in terms of having people that are influential, that can make differences, that can speak to governments that are on the board. Um, it's important to see that people from endemic countries that have gotten malaria, not once, not twice, not thrice, are the ones that feel it the most and are the ones that are on the board. It is critical to note that you know, we 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 don't only want people from endemic countries. Obviously, we want people from from everywhere because, you know, malaria is a global disease, and as we've been seeing with the with the warming of of the earth, um, malaria will tend to spread to other countries as well. So, although we have half of the board from endemic countries, it's also important that we bring people from non-endemic countries so that we can collectively think through. What are the potential solutions and how do we really want to make sure that we get ahead of the mosquito and malaria? So for us, it's critical, endemic countries, but also make sure that we are open to non-endemic countries as well. Mm. Great. So um, very good uh, <laughs> answers. This, it's not by accident that you are a CEO of a great organization. Um, you know how to handle both tensions at the same time. Um, so we need uh local people but we also have to partner with others we can't do it on our own but i i have a follow-up question that is related to localization and, and um which has been my also another frustration of mine and, and actually that's how the the podcast was born um is the issue of agenda setting um who sets the agenda for malaria control malaria elimination in africa who who holds the reins and um as they usually say, whoever has the money is the one who dictates what happens. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not gonna ask you to, to say that or to, to agree with that because I know it's a very politically charged um, uh, question, but agenda setting for malaria today, where, where does it sit in your view? Is, is, this, is this something that communities in Africa who are 95%, uh, who hold the 95% of the burden, do they come up and think about the solutions they need and then the funders fund that? Or is it the other way around, which I believe is the case, um, that the funders look at what is there and then they fund what they feel they want to fund. And it's easy to do because it's commodities and it's easy to buy and it's easy to say how many nets you have bought or vaccines or drugs. Is this not the convoluted situation we're in where the those who are suffering from the disease do not have the capacity or have not made the priorities right so that they have the capacity to deal with their own issues and then the funders or the helpers do what they feel is what they want to do? Where is, where is the decision? Where do you think uh, the agenda, the setting of the agenda of the decision, the vision 
where do you think that lies? Is it in the in those suffering or is it in those benefactors? If you asked me this question five, ten years ago, I would have said definitely the decision is with the people that have the money. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, you can see the momentum that Africa is gathering in terms of being around the table, in terms of making their thoughts known, in terms of really being the decision makers. And this is cascading down from the leadership, from our president all the way down. I was in Cote d'Ivoire two weeks ago, and I was really impressed with some of the innovative actions that they have against malaria, where they're using a technology they call the gen tube or something where you know they put it in their houses for for to capture the the mosquitoes and then they can actually see how many mosquitoes are going through or should have gone through this household in a month that's something that was indigenous um, that they came up with um, and now they're like trying to look for you know funders to replicate that to more to more to more communities so more and more we are seeing that africans both within the communities, but also the institutions, the ministries of health, are really now trying to get to the driving seat. We're, we're not absolutely there yet. Um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But I think that thought process in terms of where we were 10, 15 years ago and where we are now is really different. We, we, we need the people with the money, no doubt. And in my role, what I'm also trying to do as much as possible is to ensure that within the RBM partnership, decisions are made at the country level. So within my team, no decision will be made from here to say this country needs A, B, C, D, or E. No, it is the country to request us to say we need support in A, B, C, D, or E. And then through the network, through the partnership, we will try to find the resources to be able to support them. So gone are the days, and as an African as well, I am quite passionate about this to say localization is not just a word, a buzzword that we all use. Localization means strengthening the capacity at the communities, strengthening the capacity at the health facilities, and making sure that our decision makers, our community members are in the driving seat. So I, I fully agree with you five, 10, 15 years ago, but now more and more, um, we, are, we are trying to be at that driving seat and we are trying to make the decisions. Political, no doubt, <laughs> um, but we, we are balancing the, the equation from my perspective. And as time goes on, we will continue to ensure that really that decision making is at the country level. This is great. Uh, sounds like uh, music to my ears. Um, I have never spoken with you personally before, and, and my hope was that, well, from what I had heard, that you have that passion uh, to to drive um, the localization and, and to really uh, walk the talk. And, and really, I can only congratulate you and encourage you to to keep going. It's a it's a long process. Um, it's always difficult to to change uh, the statu quo or the. the Old guard is always uh, reflexes are are always there to to dominate or to dictate, but I'm glad that we have people like you sitting in uh, decision making positions that can sort of help uh, change the situation today. So I know that you don't have much time, so I'm going to move towards another topic that is um, uh, also 
in the news all the time, climate change. So we've heard a lot of discussions around climate change and I'm, I'm conscious that um, it's been elevated. It's being elevated to a very high level. I understand that the next um, conference of, of parties now known as COP28, uh, the 28th one, is happening in United Arab Emirates. And, and for the first time, they have one day dedicated to the impact of climate uh, on health, climate change on health. And this is certainly a welcome uh, move. Um, we have seen, uh, I think you um, certainly you have seen in the news uh, in this summer, uh, the the hype around uh, five cases, I believe it was, or seven cases of malaria that happened in the US and um, it got in the news and everyone was um, scared about it. And um, of, of course they managed to contain it. But um, how important is it that the world uh, work, um, works around or wakes up to the impact of climate change on malaria and other diseases? But I'll talk about malaria because that's what mm -hmm. you and I are focused on. What, where do you see the impact and what, what can you tell people around this topic, climate change and malaria? Yeah, cl climate change is making it more difficult for us to, to control malaria. But I wouldn't want to look at climate and malaria alone. I think it's it's good for us to think a little bit higher to say it's really around climate and health. Malaria can be a, you know one of the diseases which we're talking about today. But just to make this you know comparison in during this podcast, that it's really around climate and health in general. With the with the warming of the earth, um, we're seeing more and more adverse weather patterns, um, be it more rain or be too little rain. Um, if it's too little rain, it's drought. If it's drought, then there is, you know, agriculture is, we're not able to, you know, cultivate the harvest. People are not able to feed. Um, if they're not able to feed, there's malnutrition. If there's malnutrition, they're not able to go to schools, blah, blah, blah. So th there's really a, a wide array um, and a correlation around climate and health. But to come to your questions in terms of climate and malaria, again, it is just to give those examples with adverse weather patterns. We know how the mosquito breeds stagnant water. So when there's more rain, there'll be more stagnant water. And obviously with more stagnant water, there'll be the malaria breed, mosquitoes breeding and then, and then malaria. And we've been able to see that in a few instances um, around the globe. Pakistan was one of them with, with the... Got with it. the floods that happened in 2022, Mozambique was another one that happened last year as well. So, and more and more, we're really seeing the correlation around, um, you know, the the sensitivity of the adverse weather patterns to to the mosquito. We're also seeing the the buildup of new strains, and we have, for example, the Anopheles stevensi, um, which is more in urban areas, um, crowded areas. Um, which has also changed its pattern in terms of when it bites and when it doesn't bite. Um, so we're just seeing all these complexities around the climate change and around the adverse weather patterns that now we're saying it's really a cause for concern. Mm -hmm. We need to bring it to the attention of the world and COP28 is a perfect opportunity for us to really make those interlinkages, those direct 
linkages and also some of the indirect ones. Indirect ones could be, for example, again, with floods, campaigns, bed nets campaigns cannot take place. Um, people are not able to get their um, bed nets. Or with floods, there's displacement and people, when they go to other places, they're not able to bring their mosquito nets with them. Women are not able to go to the um, ANC, antenatal care, for their IPTP. So, so there's the, the, the complexities are there. Um, the direct and indirect um, effects of climate is there. Um, and what we are saying is that definitely we need to see this, see this in a holistic manner from a health perspective. And I'm really happy to note that on the 3rd of December at the RLM, it will be dedicated to health. And I'll actually be part of a panel, again, talking about such as some of these issues and around silos, around how we how we all work together. Yeah, that I mean that's that's really great, and I'm I'm glad you'll be there. I I can say what um what I think, and then you you decide whether that's a that's a message to to share with the world because I I come back to the same thing that I said before, the the over reliance on commodities is not going to drive us to zero. We we know what drives uh, malaria to zero. Um, it's things that are more than commodities, and I think. The reason I come back to this, and particularly in, in very big gatherings uh, like COP or other big meetings where the decision makers are there, people tend to fall down to commodities because it's easy to to calculate and and, and number and uh, be happy about. But as as long as we don't make those big links uh, between climate change outdoor mosquito control, flooding, uh, all the things that happen around a house or even a house might disappear in the floods. But if we don't strengthen the unit, uh, which is a home, uh, if we don't strengthen the unit in terms of they have enough food, they can go to school and, and be educated, they can reach a, a, a health facility um, in, a, in a short distance. Everything else we're throwing in is is abating a disaster to an extent, but it's not resolving the problem. It's it's um, which which has become a cyclical, a cyclical thing. We we have every I think I don't know how many years, four or five years, of replenishing the global fund, and then we buy the nets that we have to buy. We buy the RTTs that we have to buy. We have buy the drugs that we have to buy. And then we have to come back again and replenish because we will continue to buy those nets, we'll continue to buy those drugs. So my point is not to say that we shouldn't do that, uh, but we've been doing that for the past 20 something years. And there is less, less and less sustainability into our own system, the building the resilience that you need in a situation where a, a disaster can hit because of climate change and you know that your home is resilient to, to fight against it. Your, your, your kids have eaten, they are strong to run away or to, to, to wait until the storm is gone. This is, this is some, um, well, you would probably say that it was the case five years ago or 10 years ago and it's changing, um, but I'm impatient. I have to, <laughs> have to admit that uh, uh, I tend to be impatient about what, what the world is doing. But do you see this urgency or is it something that we were my, my, if I can give an advice, my suggestion would be to, to really raise that emergency in big meetings like that, 
because it's it's lives that get lost. It's um it's it's not just numbers. It's people who would have made this world better, but who whose lives are cut short because of a disease that is curable, preventable. Uh, here I'm just talking about malaria. So do you do you share my impatience in that, or are you much wiser and you 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 look at the world in a in a much calmer way? Because I know I can I get a little bit frustrated. What's your take on this? Where, where we are at the moment with malaria, um, there's no doubt that it's urgent. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an emergency. We actually had a meeting at the sidelines of the UN General Assembly with heads of states from Africa, as well as ministers and other stakeholders where our presidents were calling on the global world to say we need to address this emergency. Otherwise, a lot of the gains that we have made in the last five, 10 years will be lost, will be eroded completely. Um, so I fully agree with you. That's one of the key messages that we will be passing in terms of that urgency and that emergency. Now, to come to the commodities that you spoke about, and rightly so, commodities is one part of the solution. It's not the entire solution. And that is why, as I said earlier on, we are really working with our community members to ensure that that behavior change communication is taking place, because that is what will get us to the end line. Incidentally, yesterday I was actually giving opening remarks for a meeting that will take place next week in Abidjan, where we will have a social behavior change working group, about 100 to 200 people come together. And again, think exactly about what you're saying. What else do we need to do at the community level? What kind of messages do we need the pa to pass? What tools do we need to ensure that that mindset change is really happening at the community level? That's number one. The second thing that's again speaks to what you are saying in terms of that um, social behavior change is we are partnering with the sports community. We mm. have something we call the Zero Malaria Football Club, Zero Malaria FC, um, which is captained by um, Kalilu Fadiga, who was a former Senegalese player. We have Luis Figo as the vice captain. And we're trying to bring other prominent personalities in the football um, arena. We have Kada Keita, JJ Okocha, where they're forming this football FC. And as you know, in January next year, we will have the AFCON being hosted in Côte d'Ivoire. We're also trying to use the sports personalities to really make sure that we pass on those key messages that is critical to save lives, critical to save boys, girls, pregnant women, and everybody in the community. So we're not just looking at commodities alone, just to you know, address your point. From the RBM partnership, we're looking at all the various touch points that we can collectively use to make sure that we make a difference. The road ahead is long, the road ahead is windy, but I believe we have a path. We, we, we can see the end goal. It is really how do we get there and how do we get there collectively? And that's really the message I want to pass from this podcast. We know what works, we have the experience, but we need everybody on board to make sure that we reach the end goal. Ending malaria is possible. Ending malaria is what I'm passionate about. And I plead with everybody to say, let us really get on the bandwagon and let us defeat this disease once and for all. 
Great, I'm with you on that. So you can count on me and <laughs> I'll keep, keep pushing the message to the audience. Last question, then I'll, I'll wind down um, to the local governments. So we uh, talked about funders, what they do right or wrong, but there's certainly less um, money that than there should be in health in general in Africa. What would be your message to uh, local funding bodies, uh, ministries, governments? Because unless we take this uh, in our hands, um, the help comes when it comes, but we really need uh, to gather enough funding locally. What's your position there? I mean, my position there is quite simple. Um, I'm not a government official. I've never worked for the government. But what I do know is that government cannot do it alone. The public sector cannot do it alone. There are just so many priorities. So we need the public-private partnership. And in the malaria world, what we have done in some countries is that we've set up what we call the End Malaria Council, which is really a council that is set up by the head of state of that country, but brings together prominent um, private sector leads um, together with the public sector, trying to, number one, um, profile malaria, but number two, really trying to ensure that we get the needed resources. We've been able to set up the End Malaria Council in eight countries. Until date, we've been able to raise about 40 million US dollars. Now, that's still a drop in the ocean compared to the, to the magnitude of where we're going. But the plea is, let's have more and more and more End Malaria Councils so that we can continue to address the issues around domestic resource mobilization. The second thing is that we have also, with the help of the parliamentarians, been able to set up a malaria parliamentarian forum in one or two countries, Uganda being the most prominent one, where we actually have the parliamentarians who are the lawmakers really you know, critically addressing the issues around the funding gap and making sure that they work with the ministers of health, ministers of finance, to be able to put more resources down into malaria. We have success in Uganda, in Botswana, and in some other countries where more resources are being put there. So although it's not just the problem of, of, of the public sector, of the government, I think government has a critical role to play in terms of prioritizing it, gathering the key stakeholders together and making sure that malaria still remains high on the agenda. Just to let you, and I'll close off with this, in terms of the economic loss of malaria globally, we're talking about 12 billion US dollars annually that we're losing because of malaria, either because people are not able to go to work, you know, loss of income, you know, expenditures around malaria, 12 billion US dollars annually, that's significant. So if we're able to really reduce the burden of malaria, all of a sudden, you know, there's more money available to go into other sectors, other, other, other um, areas as well. So just to end, public-private partnership is key. Domestic resource mobilization is key. That global resource mobilization is key. And as the RBM partnership will continue to mold all those um, sectors in the right direction so that more financing goes in. Financing alone is not the solution. That behavior change at the community level, that mindset shift, 
that really looking at all the various sectors and all the various arenas when it comes to malaria, I think it's critical. So it's a multifaceted approach, and we all need to come together to ensure that we're able to defeat this disease that we know is curable and is preventable. Michael, uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. I don't want to abuse your time. I was given the time that I shouldn't pass. Uh, but I, I always end uh, my podcast on a positive note. So I'll let you tell us what makes you hopeful, like what makes you going on. And then we end on that positive note. Great. What makes me hopeful in the fight against malaria is that we have really dedicated people. We have people that are working night and day to end the, the burden of malaria on the, con on the continent and globally. What makes me hopeful is that we have new commodities in the pipeline that will be coming out in the next three, four, five years. And that really makes me hopeful. What makes me hopeful is that the globe has come together in terms of the SDGs, in terms of trying to end malaria, but also trying to fight poverty and trying to make sure that um, you know, some of these um, goals are met. What makes me hopeful is that we have our boys, our girls in the communities that are, to be honest, totally fed up with, with us, with our generation, and they're wanting to make a difference. The future of the youth is today. We have a globe, we have a continent that is 60%, 70% based on youth, um, and we need to continue to empower them to be the leaders of today, not the leaders of tomorrow. So what makes me hopeful is that some of us are really trying to bring the youth in and to make sure that we empower them to be able to take decisions that will benefit their generation. So all in all, I am very hopeful that we can end malaria. I am hopeful that if we all come together, it is possible. And I am hopeful that we will leave a better world for our children and our children's children. Thank you. Michael. Thank you uh, for being on Malaria, Poverty and Politics. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your passion. I can only wish you um, success in what you're doing. And you have me as a supporter and a partner to end malaria for good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Silas. And thank you to the listeners. That was Dr. Michael Adekunle Charles, CEO of the RBM Partnership to End Malaria. I hope you enjoyed this episode and please consider following this podcast on your favorite podcast player on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Malaria Politics. Until we chat again, love mercy, act justly and walk humbly.